uh, don't feel bad if you need to bring a blanket to church. Like, we're not going to judge you if you call. Just bring a blanket, wrap it around you. The beast was like, yeah, I should have brought one this morning. <laughs> so we are making our way through the book of Ephesians, and we're going through it systematically. In other words, from the beginning of the book all the way through to the end of the book. And the reason we do that is that we don't want to just pick our favorite topics or the favorite trendy um, verses that are in there, the ones that make us feel warm and fuzzy. When Paul is saying his farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, I've not hesitated to preach the whole counsel of God to you. We need the whole teaching of all of Scripture, not just some teaching of our favorite parts. We need the whole counsel of God. And when we have that, we, will be, we won't be swayed and tossed about by every trendy thing or every conspiracy theory that's doing the rounds. We will be stable. We'll be firm in our faith. And so we want Scripture. We want God's Word to change us, to shape us, to guide us. We want to be changed by Him, not by our friends, not by what the world says, but by what God says. So let me, before we start, let me challenge you. How do you treat God's Word? Do we look at God's Word and put our interpretation, what we want it to mean, on the Scripture? Because there are many people around the world and throughout church history that have taken verses out of context and use them to justify their cause, or their sin, or their case, or their opinion, whatever it is. They've taken verses and say, yeah, you see, I can do that. And uh, that's not how we ought to use God's word. Would it be right for the creatures, you and me, we are creatures, to say to the creator, I'll tell you what your words mean. Like, how silly is that? But that's what we do sometimes. So why we preach through a whole book in sequence is that, God, you tell us what you're saying. And when we come to God's words, we don't figure out what it means. We don't study it and say, oh, we, we'd like it if it says this. <laughs> but it judges us, Hebrews 4 says. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. So when we come to God's word, it should lead us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. But we find that God speaks to us when we come to his word. And that's obvious, I hope, for everyone this morning. And in the text that we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks very directly, like he very frankly, he pulls no punches, he, he talks straight. There's not much tact or diplomacy. He's not kind of just kind of trying to walk on eggshells. I don't want to upset you, but I need to say this thing. No, no, he, <laughs> he's very direct. He doesn't beat around the bush. And I think the challenge in the society we live in, postmodern, post-truth, is that we get upset and offended very easily. Ah, you don't have the same view as me. You disagree with me. Ah, we can't be friends. I'm upset. And I'll blurt out everything I can on Facebook or Instagram. But... But friends, can I ask that if God's word says something that maybe we don't like, or the Holy Spirit convicts us, you know that feeling where you're like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. When that happens, we need to just own it. Okay, yes, Lord, I stuffed up there, or I made a bad decision, or whatever. We own it, we repent, we change, we move on. This is God's word, amen? 
So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 uh, from verse 17. We're going to take this in three chunks this morning. Ephesians 4, 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. The first big thought, the first big idea this morning is that we are to live differently to the world. Paul says, don't live as the unbelievers do. And he says their thinking is futile. Not that their minds are empty. Not that they can't have intelligent thoughts or they can't do amazing things. But their minds are filled with things that don't actually have significance in eternity. God is bringing a spiritual kingdom in his people. But the thoughts of unbelievers actually, they might be very useful on planet earth. But in the greater scheme of things, in God's kingdom, Paul says they're futile. He says they're darkened in their understanding. In other words, their their understanding of spiritual things is obscured. It's blurred. When I went into the kids' bedroom this morning, now that it's winter, the windows are closed at night. And like all the condensation is on their windows. And you can't see out clearly. Like it's blurry. And Paul says for unsaved people. They're, they darkened. How, they can't see properly who God is. They can't see his beauty, his nature, his love. They can't see the impact of their own sin wrecking and polluting their lives. It reminds me of another scripture where Paul says, the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Scary thought. And Paul says, don't live like that. He says they're separated from the life of God. That's a scary statement. To be separated from the life of God because their hearts are hardened. In other words, the the spiritual life that comes from God's grace, his favor, his blessing, his presence, his nearness, this true joy that we find in his words, this affirmation, they don't have proper access to those things. They're separated from God because their hearts are hard. And although he's writing to, or he's referring to unbelievers, he's writing to the church. And he's saying, Christians, don't live like this. In other words, sin can harden our hearts so that we don't experience all that God has for us. Paul says, don't live like that. Don't cut yourself off from the life of God because you're sinning. And the more you sin, your, your hearts get hard. He says they're given over to sensuality and they indulge in every kind of impurity. You know that bad people, when they sin, they try and hide their sin. They try and cover it up. They're ashamed or embarrassed. But Paul's not talking about those people. He's talking about people who who are so hardened by sin that they openly flaunt their sin. They don't care who sees what they're doing. As long as they can do their thing and gratify their desire. And Paul says, don't 
Don't live like this. Don't live how people in the world live. Don't let your thinking become futile or your understanding grow dark or your hearts become hard because it's gonna separate you from God's life. In the next section, Paul gives some examples. Let's read uh, from verse 25. And notice as you read these verses that Paul will often give a negative thing right next to the positive thing. So look out for those as you read. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and malice. Rather be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So Paul says, don't live like the world. And here are some examples to help you see what it means. Don't live like these, but live like this. So he gives some examples at the good, the bad and the good. And he starts off speaking about our speech. Verse 25, falsehood or lying. Verse 29, unwholesome talk. And he says, don't talk like that, but rather build others up. What's helpful for them. Do you know how much the Bible speaks about our language and our words? A lot. Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak. So if you just listen to people and how they talk, you can quite quickly tell what's inside their heart. And they might be saying all the right words, or they might just be gossiping or lying. It might be obvious. But sometimes the words are right, but the tone's all wrong. They're sarcastic. They're negative. They... They belittle or they're condescending or they have a superior tone. Or they tell rude jokes or coarse jokes or, or the jokes they tell are, are um, derogatory about a group of people. When I was at high school and university, we used to tell jokes about blondes. This, they were funny, but I mean, I wasn't saved, but they derogatory. All blondes are like this. Hey, Andrew, <laughs> aren't you blonde? Two thirds, yeah joking. We used to tell jokes about the Irish people. Do you know what the latest Irish invention is? Dot, dot, dot. A waterproof tea bag. Like, maybe you didn't grow up in KZN and maybe you don't know those jokes, but <laughs> don't laugh, man. The Irish people are, they're lovely. <laughs> but we can tell jokes about men. Oh, men are like this. Or women are like this. Or marriage. Oh, you, you married ball and chain. But friends, we're talking about something that God made. Marriage is good. So why are we doing a marriage enrichment course in a few weeks' time? What is your language like? What are the words coming out your mouth? Three little filters to help us before we say anything. Is it true? Is it helpful? And is it necessary? 
Because some things we should just not say, because they might be true, they might be helpful, but at that time, it's just not necessary. It's going to cause more damage than building up. Paul talks about our speech, let it be changed. Talks about anger in verse 26, about stealing in verse 28, or theft, versus doing something useful, having a proper job. I'm part of a um, Christian business network. They have a once a month meeting on a Friday morning, and they get, it's online on Zoom and a couple of locations as well in person. And they have different speakers coming to speak about faith in the marketplace and how we can live it out and what God's doing in their sphere, etc. And a few months ago, there was a lady presenting from Port Elizabeth. And she was telling the story of how a few years ago, she started a Christian NGO to help unemployment in South Africa. The most amazing story, the organization's called Work for a Living, the four being the, the, the number four, Work for a Living. And she was saying how there are now dozens of centers across the country where unemployed people can go and get trained on how to be an employee, how to apply for a job. And it's not the basic stuff that you can find everywhere. They've taken the gospel and the principles of God's kingdom and transformed them into a course that changes people. They teach people not to be entitled and how to have the proper employee-employee-employer relationship, how to conduct yourself, how to get promoted, like all kingdom principles. Tens of thousands of people have got jobs through these centers and through this training course around the country. More than 2,000 businesses have been started off the back of that training. The people who do the training, it's become like a business for them. They are profitable in that training. And something like 10 or 12,000 people have got saved. By the end of this course, they realize, well, Jesus is the one that can help me, but their thinking has so changed. Their worldview has been altered, and people's lives are transformed. It's an amazing example how Paul says, don't steal, but do something useful. He speaks about bitterness and rage and malice. Rather be kind and compassionate. Verse 27, he says, do not give the devil a foothold. What does that mean? Well, when we sin, when we allow sin to coexist, when we're comfortable with sin hanging out in our lives instead of dealing with it, it's like we give the devil a, a place to put his foot, a foothold. He gets more access. We give him more territory. He's able to stick in another fiery dart, if you like. And Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. He's going to steal more territory. And then he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And you know that Paul's list here of all the different sins and things that we shouldn't do, that's not a full list. Okay, you know that. Like he doesn't talk about sexual sin or about financial mismanagement or about witchcraft or about idolatry. There's a lot of things he doesn't mention, but all sin grieves the Holy Spirit. When we sin and when we allow sin to coexist in our lives, when we're happy with this bit of sin, that grieves the Holy Spirit. That saddens God. I heard the most amazing story this week from Terry. Uh, one of the elders in the church, and, and he's a principal at a school, and he's got to deal with um, disruptive students and students who don't behave properly, and then when it gets really bad, you've got to call the dad or the mom in, 
And then you've got to tell the mom and dad, your child is horrid. Obviously, they don't say it like that. But usually the, the parents are like, no, my child is, he's a good guy. It's your teachers that are bad and the school system and like, you know, the, 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 the parents attack back. But he said this, what happened last week was that there was this kid for weeks had been after school finishes and all the kids had left the classroom, was going into classrooms, writing horrendous stuff on the boards about teachers. Teacher would come in the next day and like this terrible language on the board. They couldn't catch him. He was writing it on desks even. And eventually, weeks later, they, they figured out who he was because he was the last guy to sit on, on that desk and then suddenly that desk had some bad words and they, they figured it out. Disciplinary kind of thing, they called the dad in. Now this dad is a big, strong oak mask. And Terry's like, oh boy, this is, this is not gonna go well. And so they, they, Terry and the HR person, they, they talk to the father and the son are there and telling the father, he's just like quiet, but you can see there's anger there. And eventually the, the dad says, well, what did he actually write? Did he actually write, and what did he write? Was it really as bad as, as you're saying? So Terry takes out the, the um, not the charge sheet, but you have to put down on paper what the charge is. And uh, <laughs> there's a charge sheet. Though. And, the, the, you know, the, there's photographs or whatever. You can see what this boy has written. The father picks up the paper and starts reading. And he just starts crying. He looks at his boy and he says, I can't believe you've let the family name down. You've disappointed me. You've displeased me. You've grieved me. And what Terry thought was going to blow up from the dad was this is sadness, this disappointment in the father from what his son has done. And friends, when we allow sin to coexist, it's like we grieve the father. So Paul says, don't live like the unbelievers. Here are some examples of what's bad and, and, and what it should look like when it's good. And then he, he says in this last section we're going to look at, we are to live like Christ. Let's read from Ephesians 4 verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says, we are to live like God. Don't live like this, but we are to live like Christ. And he gives us three kind of handles how to do it. He says, put off your old self, be made new in your mind, change how you think, and then put on the new self. So firstly, let's take them. Put off your old self. If you know your Bible, you might be thinking, but hang on. This same guy, Paul, in Romans chapter 6, he said, our old self has been crucified with Christ. It's buried. It's dead. We're a new creation. Why now is he telling us to put it off if it's already dead? See, the Bible contradicts itself. Contrast it. <laughs> Let me try to explain it like this. Romans chapter 6 has to do, the, 
the old self being crucified has to do with what God has done. Historically, God has placed us in Christ. We've been crucified with him. And the old way of living being dominated by sin, that old man is dead. That's our position before God. The old man has died. God doesn't see that. It's been crucified. But Ephesians chapter 4, what we're looking at now, and similar verses in Colossians 3, talk about putting off the old self. That's the behavior. That's not the position. That's the behavior. So Paul says the old man is dead. Now, Now make sure he's dead. Don't live like the old man. Your behavior should reflect the change because the old man is dead. It's how we choose to live. So God buries the old self by bringing us into his kingdom. After this, we get to throw off the behavior of the old man. So we're a new person. The old is gone. The new has come. So Paul says, make sure the same happens with your behavior, with your decisions, with how you live, with your speech, with your, all those examples he gave. Then he says, the second kind of handle, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Change how you think. And we have to allow God to change and to reshape our thoughts because they're naturally like the old man because that's what we've come out of. We've come out of Egypt. We want to think like Egyptians do. Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we are to think in a new way, not the patterns of this world, but we bring God and his kingdom into our thinking. And it applies in every area of our life because God wants to transform and bring his kingdom life into every part of our life, our marriage, how we think about our jobs and our careers, our money, our kids and parenting, our stuff, our time. We need to change how we think about that chatting with someone yesterday about the, the whole instant gratification and how I'm trying to teach my kids not to spend their pocket money the day they get it, but rather to save it. Some of the parents are laughing. Rather to save it and not to buy sweets because when you buy a sweet, it's gone in two minutes, but to buy like a pair of shoes or something that can last more than five minutes. No, they just, they want to spend the money like this instant gratification. And that's a mindset. That's a way of thinking. That's a worldly pattern. Jesus says, store up for yourselves riches in heaven, not on earth. Don't be taken by the thing. Enjoy earth. It's great. God made it. But don't be trapped by the things on earth. Rather, actually, long-term gratification. I'm going to deny myself while I'm living here so that there's riches in heaven. I'm going to choose to live differently. It's a way of thinking. It has to change. And that applies to every part of our life. So Paul says, take off the old self, change how you think, and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness. How's that? We are created to be like God. It's amazing. We're already new people, new creations, new creatures, but now we put into practice what God has done, all the examples that Paul gave us. For example, Put off your old self in the area of our speech. Stop talking negatively. Stop the 
crude jokes. Stop the sarcasm and the innuendo and the suggestive language or stop it. And then change the way you think about your language. Go and see and read God's word. What does he say about our language and our speech? Get before God and say, Holy Spirit, change me. Transform my mind. Because it's not just me trying to work out my salvation. It's God's power in me as well. And then put on the new self. Do the right things. Speak in faith. Encourage others. Build them up. Don't lie. Etc. That's just the thing of speech. But apply that to every part of your life. It's very practical. Can we put up the next picture? Thanks, Isabel. Cute, eh? Little picture of this boy putting a shirt on. Colossians 3, which is a very similar passage. Paul says, clothe yourselves with Christ. Put on the new self. It's a deliberate action. It's my part to play. God has crucified the old man. Now I need to sort out the behavior of the new man. New man, don't behave like the old man. That's kind of what Paul's saying. We choose to live like Jesus, to live worthy of his calling. Now can you picture this little boy half an hour before this? He's been playing outdoor in the mud. You guys have got girls. You don't know what that's like, right? Boys play in the mud. They kick things. They throw stones. They like... Boys are wild. He comes in, the shirt is dirty and muddy, his face, his hair is all over the place. And mom says, take off that old shirt. So you take it off. Get in the bath. Be made new, be, be cleaned, be, be washed with the word of God. And then put on Christ, put on the new, the clean, that's holy and righteous. It's a picture of us. We're to take off the dirty rags of our old way of living. Then we to wash ourselves with God's word. We renew our minds. And then we put on not the old rags, because it doesn't make sense to take them off, get clean and put them on again. Don't go back to wild living if you're born again. No, put on your new self. Clothe yourself with Christ. I asked God this question, why, Lord? Why should we clothe ourselves with Christ? What's the use? What's the benefit of changing how we talk and how we act and how we deal with others and our feelings and like all this stuff? What's, what does it benefit us? What's the point? Why, what good reason could I give you today to go and do all the stuff that Paul is saying we should do? It's a lot of hard work. Have you ever tried to change yourself? Yo, I've been trying to change my wife for years, and I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> it's hard enough to change me. I can't change someone else, right? But, but it's a lot of hard work. I'm not sure I'm up to it, Lord. Why should I do it? What benefit is there? And I thought, oh, the Lord's going to give me something great for you guys this morning. And he didn't. I felt him convict me and challenge me. He said, Glenn, that's the wrong question to ask. Because when we're asking this question, the issue of ownership has not been settled. When we ask these kinds of questions, it's because we think we get to call the shots. What's in it for me, Lord? The issue of Jesus' lordship, in other words, he calls the shots, it's not yet settled in our heart. 
if that's the question we're asking. Because Peter says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You see, we think God owes us. No, he saved us. Our due was eternal separation and suffering apart from God because of our sin. And he so graciously, because he loved the world, gave his only son and died for us. He owes us nothing, friends. But if our thinking's all wrong, we can say, Lord, what's in it for me? I felt like God said, it's the wrong question. And if that's the question, friends, if you are boxing with God about one of these things Paul says, maybe it's about water baptism, maybe it's about tithing, maybe it's about sexual sin, maybe it's about whatever. If you're fighting with God on something, I want to, with respect, say to you, maybe the issue of ownership, of whose you are, is not yet settled in your heart. Because Paul says, stop doing those things. Be made new, put on the new self. It's, it's an instruction, it's not a suggestion. And he can say it so directly because we're not our own. We are his. Maybe it's stealing or anger or think of any of those other ones. One of the ones that Paul doesn't mention in that list is idolatry. Oh, but Glenn, I don't worship idols. There's no statues in my home. But you know what an idol is? It's a false god. It's a functional savior. And that means it's something that rescues you from your current hell. Okay, so single people, when I get married, when Prince Charming sweeps me off my feet, oh, marriage is gonna be amazing. I'll be out of my hell of singleness. I've got no purpose, and this is what we think, I've got no purpose. Life can't be meaningful until I'm married. I'm not saying we all think like that, but if that's the thought, if, if marriage or a spouse is saving you from your hell, friends, it's a functional savior, it's an idol. Let me give some other examples. We might say, when I've got enough money, I can get out of this place I'm in or out of the debt or I can get a car and do more. And, and it's not wrong to, to desire to grow our wealth, as long as you're not owned by the wealth, right? But if money is the savior, if my faith is in money to rescue me out of this hell, it's an idol. When my body's the perfect shape, oh, I'm gonna be so confident, my self-loathing is gonna be gone. That's a savior that's getting you out of that hell. Uh, you know what, I'm so glad that I've got kids and they, they keep us busy because there's ballet lessons and there's karate after school and, and there's like music lessons and this and that. And my kids keep me so busy and I'm so grateful because they are saving me from the boring life I would live without my kids. We can worship our kids, friends. They can be a functional savior. We can worship our jobs and our careers. I'm so glad I've got this job and I, I'm, I'm really doing well at work and I'm progressing and I'm meaningful employment and doing good projects and the boss loves me and my team are great and this success is rescuing me from the failure of my private life. My kids are wild. The home's in tatters, the marriage is breaking up. And so this, this thing is saving me a little bit. It's a functional savior. It's not wrong to do well at work. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But if it's saving you out of your hell, it's an idol. 
And Paul says, don't live like that. So let me ask the questions differently, maybe. Feel free to put up your hand. Get your hands ready. Just practice quickly. Everyone, hands up. Okay, good. They work. Does anyone here want to give the devil more authority in their life? Put up your hand. Does anyone here want to grieve the Holy Spirit? Does anyone here want to be separated from the life of God? Which would you rather have more of in your life, the work of the devil or the work of God? Work of God. You know that God can only work with what you give him. You know that. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door and let me in to that area of baptism, tithing, sexuality, dot, 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 whatever it is for you, if you let me in, I'll come in and transform that thing. But if we hold on to stuff in our lives, we don't surrender and give it over to God, he's not going to work with it. We're going to grieve him because we allow it to coexist. The devil gets a foothold. And if this issue of ownership, of the lordship of Jesus over every part of our life, if that's not settled, friends, we're going to struggle because we're never going to go around that mountain or get past going around the mountain. We have to surrender those things to him. We put up the last picture. How cool is that guy? It's in my DNA. Like, this oak is like, he's pumped up. You look at that face. He's confident. No one's going to take him off his course. He's strong. He's going to succeed. Why? It's in his DNA. He's programmed to excel. Look at that face. Like, nothing's going to stop that kid, right? He's got an advantage. It's in his DNA. He's, he's coded. He's hardwired to be like that and to succeed in whatever he's doing. We're a bit like that because we're a new creature. God has changed us. We're new. It's programmed into our DNA to succeed. It's hardwired in us to be victorious and overcome and to live a life that's worthy. But this kid, despite his DNA being amazing and giving him an advantage, he might one day lose his confidence. He might have fears or worries or insecurities, or he might have failed at something. And he might walk around like this with that T-shirt on. And then his behavior is not matching up with his DNA because he's made to succeed, but he's walking around dejected and sad and lonely and miserable. And what's that song? I'm going to eat no worms. Nobody loves me, everybody, that one. And friends, this is what Paul is saying through these scriptures this morning. You're a new creation. Now live like it. Put on your new self. Live like your father is God. That DNA. Can we close our eyes? I want to pray for us. Father, thank you that your word is so direct.